Today, we're talking to Vince, the founder and CTO at Virtual Z Computing, all about demystifying mainframes. If you're a fan of today's conversation, go check out Vince and his team's new podcast, Skyward Data. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. Yeah, so I had a really fun, energetic morning. Then I was like, yeah, let's go do a podcast now. Well, keep, well, keep the fun times going. Well, you're having more fun <laughs> than me this morning. So good for you. Yeah. So. Now you said you're a pilot. Are you currently flying? Yeah, I, uh, I'm a pilot and, you know, really small aircraft owner. It's one of my big loves in, in life. I've been flying since the 1980s. So, uh, yeah, I get a get a thrill out of that. My my oldest son and our grandson live in, the, you know, still live in that New York area. So, uh, you know, for us to go visit him is, I don't know, 10 hours driving. It's close to that to take commercial airlines because everything's connections and all of that. But for me to jump in the airplane and get myself up there is, you know, generally three hours, little, maybe a little less sometimes. So it's a lot uh, cooler too. <laughs> yeah. Well, you get to come and go on your schedule. You get to, you know, you don't have to deal with LaGuardia or JFK and you pick mm-hmm. you know, whatever small airport you want to use. Uh, my airport here, I actually live almost walking distance to it. So it's, uh, you know, it's only oh, wow. about a mile away. So it's literally climb in the car, drag all the stuff to the airport, load the plane, put the car in the hangar, get in the plane, and yeah, you're you're in the air twenty minutes later. See your maybe. grandkids. See, yeah, well, nice. one grandson so far, but uh, but yeah, he, yeah, he just turned three, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's a wonderful age to yeah at least feel like you can be engaged and all of that with them. 100%. Yeah. I have a, my daughter just turned six this past week and she, like, I had one of my first conversations with her, <laughs> you know, in the sense that I guess more mature conversations with her, uh, because we were talking about how she was reacting to certain situations and what she could work on and like a personal development conversation. And she's like, yeah, dad, I understand. She's like, I really can improve on that. And I was like, that is the coolest thing. Cause you know, all the conversations from age three, uh, you know, to five or whatnot, they're just general, uh, everyday living conversations. Yeah. But this was like a personal development conversation that I had. And I told my wife after I was like, this is the best ever. <laughs> yep. G- give it another five, 10 years. <laughs> oh, I don't want to. I can see it coming. Yeah. She's, she's six going on 16. I can see it happening. Uh, I'm, I'm thoroughly scared. So it'll be an adventure of a lifetime. And my son's more predictable. He'll just punch me all the time. Like a yeah. co- it's like living with a ninja. Uh, so, but we're we're gonna talk about mainframes. Yep. Uh, yep. Curious, curious uh, about what's the difference between a mainframe and a server? How are they different? Yeah, well, in today's day and age, I'm not sure there's a huge difference. I mean, the mainframe is a really really big server. Uh, yeah, and it's uh, you, you make an interesting point too. I mean, it it. You know, mainframe computing is, you know, I think of it as one of the crown jewels in IT. Uh, you know, high percentage of the world's largest uh, commercial sites, government sites, so forth. You know, they do a lot of processing on mainframes, and yet, you know, not a lot of folks know these systems in, uh, you know, in, in any kind of depth. I used to do, um, like, guest lecturer stuff with uh, one of the universities, and I remember walking into a room full of um, grad students. I mean, these are masters and PhD candidates and computer science. And right, so you would think experts. And one of the questions I would ask to start the class is, how many of you have ever you know, seen or heard of mainframes? And, you know, I taught this class probably four or five times, and I never saw a hand go up when I asked who knew anything about mainframes. And yet, I don't know, 80% of the world's uh, commercial data uh, probably traces its way back to a mainframe one way or another. So, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, the other thing there is it's, uh, it's a really interesting uh, history lesson. I mean, today's mainframes trace their roots all the way back to the 1960s and work that IBM did back then. 
And, uh, you know, it's almost hard for people to kind of wrap their heads around is applications that were written even, you know, 30, 40, sometimes 50 years ago continue to work, you know, unchanged at the binary level on today's most modern mainframes. Now, certainly today's systems are vastly different in terms of technology. Uh, and, you know, mainframe has, you know, all pretty much all the same Componentry that you see in any other platform, you know, it can run Java, it can run you know web applications, it can yeah you know, have complex networks, you know, all the same things you find in any server there on the mainframe. It's just that um, they tend to be kind of out of sight and and out of mind that way. And you know, when you look back um, historically, you see that. A lot of the things that have kind of come along over the years as breakthroughs in computing were done like decades earlier in the in the mainframe environment. I remember, you know, funny story about that. I remember um, uh, when Microsoft released uh, the very first version of Windows NT, they were really uh, bragging about its um, multitasking capabilities and yeah, you know, the fact that you get a one more than one processor core on it. Well, you know, those features existed in mainframes in the 1970s. So, you know, it's uh, you know definitely a different approach. Uh, you know, definitely you know different operating systems. You know, most mainframes. Um, you know, the customers we speak to are running IBM ZOS operating system, which is kind of its its own little ecosystem, very different than Linux or Windows or, you know, anything else out there. But, um, yeah, really capable platform. And, you know, in terms of capacity, a large mainframe is, um, you know, easily uh, uh, hundreds of times more capacity than, you know, even a large uh, you know, server would be in the, in the Windows or, or Linux environment. So, you know, some fundamental differences, but at the end of the day, they run a lot of very similar workloads. Okay, now I, I'm going to ask more pointed questions because I've got, you've given me something to go off of here. I, yeah. I'm going to be relentless about my personal understanding <laughs> of a mainframe. Well, it's okay. Good. We can win you over. The IB, <laughs> you can win me over. I don't even know what they are, so let's hope I can figure it out first. Yeah. All right, so IBM, so if I have a, if I go by, uh, you know, boards and a processor and a, and a drive and I basically build my own computer and I put cool. IBM ZOS on there is that now a mainframe no well so first of all you can't quite do that because okay you're way down at the processor architecture level the mainframe is a different beast you know it's not running on an Intel architecture or you know anything that's kind of off the shelf that way it runs, um, yeah. It's it, it's really its own architecture, you know, so its own hardware instructions and and so forth. And you know, as far as I know, the only one who actually you know builds that hardware at the chip level is IBM, and the only place these things go is into you know, the mainframes that they sell. So um, you know, over the years, there have been competitors. Oh. There have been Hitachi. There have been. You know, companies like Amdahl who have built their own hardware that implemented the, the mainframe architecture. But generally, you know, you can do what you described and just kind of cobble it together. You buy kind of a completed system, you know, typically from uh, from from IBM these days. So, okay. yeah, but, but other than that, uh, you know, I think if you, you know, if there was a market and, you know, you could go buy... Uh, the, you know, a mainframe processor chip to plug into a motherboard someplace, then what you described is, uh, you know, pretty close to the truth. The internal architecture of parts is different. There isn't today. No, no. Okay. I mean, there there are a few, um, I'll, I'll call them emulators, you know, basically mm -hmm. um, PC programs that can pretend to be a mainframe and they create that uh, kind of a virtualization of the mainframe environment. So you can run that in software. One of the popular ones is something called Hercules. Uh, so, you know, that's what a hobbyist would typically do. You would cobble together you know, what you described, uh, you know, a server 
with whatever componentry you wanted, you would run something like Hercules, and now you have a mainframe that you can kind of put your hands on. Be very small in terms of capacity, it wouldn't have all of the mainframe features. And probably the biggest problem you would have with that is um, you can't just go to IBM and say, I'd like to license a copy of ZOS and install that operating system on it. You know, they they tie that software license to you know piece of hardware and you know certainly they wouldn't sell you that to run on 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 something like a hercules emulated mainframe but you know conceptually you're in the in 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 the right spot it's just different internal architecture for all of this stuff got it so mainframe is not a brand correct that is correct I mean, it's, so it's uh, not a brand. If you look in the movies, um, you know, often you'll hear people talk about such mm-hmm. and such going on on, quote, the mainframe. Uh, and then they'll show a picture of it and you'll see all sorts of things, you know, big, you know, Unix systems, big, you know, mini computers, we used to call them. I mean, they're just kind of big and impressive because they have a lot of lights. They probably make it uh, interesting to film. Uh, but that's not what we're talking here. Usually when people talk about mainframes, they're talking about the you know, IBM brands it as System mm-hmm. Z. And, uh, you know, there are you know, dozens of different models that have been produced under under that name over the past you know, X years. So, you know, that's generally yeah. what we're talking about. And you would, you know, if we kind of wheeled one in for the podcast, and by the way, that's a great idea if you can get some... Uh, you know, artwork woven in, you know, people would probably love yeah. to see one of these things. They are not impressive. I mean, they look all the world like a <laughs> commercial refrigerator or, mm-hmm. you know, so, something like that. It's not like you would, you might think, you know, this panel of dials and lights and knobs. And I, I mean, that existed in the seventies that, that hasn't existed probably in you know, at least 30 years now though. Uh, yeah, I get most of my my knowledge from movies. So <laughs> they'll say the mainframe, well, they'll pan to it. I'm like, it's that. just a servers. I was like, they're just servers. It's just a yeah. normal rack. And I'm like, what is this mainframe? And and so um, that's that's really helpful. Uh, now let me let me continue to to make some assumptions and have you correct me here. So it, mainframe is not a brand. Mainframe would be a an, a specific type of architecture. Yeah, I would I would think of it as a you know on on a similar level to I mean you use the word server before you know when I say mm-hmm. server people tend to think of kind of rack mount things that are populated with Intel processors or AMD processors but they you know run a certain kind of workload mainframe is kind of that where we're talking about IBM System Z hardware and ZOS operating system and all of the things that kind of kind of go with that. Are there mainframes that are not IBM? Um, well, so so you know, putting aside the software emulated mainframes that we talked about briefly, mm-hmm. um, uh, there there were three or four other hardware vendors in this space. Um, you know, Hitachi, Amdahl, um, you know, you know, a few others. Uh, Fujitsu has uh, you know nearly compatible version that they sell mostly outside the U.S. So you know there there are those kind of things that generally get lumped into um, in, into that category as uh, you know mainframe. There you know in in the 1990s uh, you know, these uh, I'll call them alternate brands were um, uh, you know very. I won't say very popular, but they certainly had 20, 30, 40% of the overall mainframe market. Uh, yeah, in the years since then, they've kind of dwindled. You know, IBM um, made a major leap in technology when they brought 64-bit processing to to their mainframes. And at that point, it just got too expensive for a lot of the competitors to kind of stay in that space. So, you know, little by little, they've been fading away. I'm sure there's still some of those systems scattered around the world. We we run into mainframe customers, especially outside the U.S., that um, have been running whatever they're running since the, uh, the uh, 1990s uh, without really changing anything. So, you know, I'm sure there's still some of those out there. 
Um, but, uh, you know, the, the kind of mainstream mainframe would be, you know, what we describe would be IBM's processors, operating systems, and, you know, all of that stuff. And would load workloads be able to shift between manufacturers? Like if I had a Fujitsu one and then I, is that architecture identical to the IBM architecture? Is that like open architecture that they're aware of and they can recreate? And can the workloads be moved between them seamlessly or no? Yeah, I mean, it, um, and, and that's basically what kind of spawned this competitive thing back in the 1980s. You used to see that, you know, IBM published very detailed specifications about the architecture. In fact, um, uh, their operating system was one of the first examples of, you know, what today we call open source. You know, when I was kind of a youngster coming up in this space, if I had a really deep question about how the operating system worked, I kind of walked down the hall and we had this cabinet of microfiche. And on that microfiche, and, you know, people probably don't even know what microfiche is anymore, but, you know, it was basically the source code to all of the operating system. So, you know, it was there. And that meant if you were a competitor, you had kind of a pretty clear path to understanding how all of this stuff worked and, you know, all the fine print of, of the architecture. Yeah, you know, at some point, um, I think IBM felt that, uh, you know, and I would feel the same way if I were a shareholder of IBM, you know, that that's a lot of intellectual property that needs to be protected. So little by little, it became, you know, trademarked and patented and so forth. And now probably all that same information exists. It's just that first you have to go license it from IBM. And of course, if you're looking to build a competing mainframe, that's going to be a really, really expensive thing to, uh, to, to license from them. Or they might just you know, refuse to do it outright. So, you know, the, the, the foundations are, are, are there. You know, you can mm -hmm. understand, um, you know, that, that mainframe architecture in an incredible amount of detail, much more, you know, I'm, I'm one of the rare people. I've developed commercial software on mainframes, on Windows, on Linux, on, you know, lots of different platforms. And I have to say, it's, it's, it's not even close. If I want to know some detail about how the mainframe works, uh, it's much better documented. There are better tools to help you understand it, you know, all, all of that. I can understand kind of the internal workings of the mainframe way better than I can understand the internal workings of, you know, let's say, a Windows server. So it's, um, you know, it, it created an environment where it was easy to compete because of all of this stuff. And that's what we, uh, that's what we, you know, saw, you know, back in the, back in the 80s. And, you know, the, the value prop for a lot of these companies was that, you know, they would give you 20% better performance for 20% lower cost. So, you know, they were, they were able to, um, you know, lure a lot of business away from, uh, from, from IBM that way. And the only way they could do it, to kind of circle back to your original question, the only way they could really do it was to show that they were absolutely 100% compatible. You could run a particular program on the IBM hardware, take that exact program, run it on, you know, the Brand X hardware, and it would uh, process exactly the same way. Maybe a little bit faster, maybe the cost would be a little lower, but the results would be the same. So, yeah, yeah, that's an important part. Do you believe that applications within the ecosystem were written with more stability and better performance because of the access to the source code of the operating system? Um, I mean, in some cases, yes. Um, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a lot of things though. I mean, in the earlier days of, um, you know, mainframe computing, it wasn't uncommon for folks to write, you know, even large applications in um, you know assembler language, you know the low-level language that the hardware understands, you know where the programmer is writing, you know one for one. Here's a hardware instruction, one after the next, after the next. Uh, you know, in the big software vendors, that's still how how the world is. Uh, you know, and I compare the efficiency of that to 
you know, let's say writing a, you know, let's say a Java application that runs on the mainframe, it's night and day. You know, I, I mean, a well-implemented um, assembler language routine running on, you know, modern mainframe hardware is going to be, you know, just light years faster than trying to do that same algorithm in Java or C or C++ or you know, whatever other language you have. So I think, you know, in in those days, I mean, it's important to understand, I mean, the, um, a lot of those earlier mainframes, you know, we measured, you know, disk space in megabytes, not terabytes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and memory was, you know, K, not, not, not terabytes. And, you know, so, you know, when you're, when, when the, you know, business required, you know, I need this particular function and it's got to fit on a 4K page or, you know, whatever it was. Uh, you know, your your options were pretty limited. You know, you didn't really see a lot of, uh, you know, high-level language use in the earliest days of the, the mainframe. That came with time. And, you know, like I said, today, you know, all of that exists pretty much the same on mainframe as other other platforms. It's just much more, um, much more, uh, uh, you know, that legacy code is still, you know, the more efficient stuff versus the new applications that are that are showing up there. You also had a really interesting thing there too. You know, one of the ways I I kind of started out was um yeah, I worked on what became one of the first um commercially viable uh, cybersecurity products for the mainframe. And uh you know, we we needed to do very low level things inside the operating system. So, you know, as an example, when you open a file, we needed to insert some logic there that said, are you allowed to open this file? And Always. You know, ha- yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, being able to understand kind of the little gory details of how the, the, the mainframe operating system was working was a huge enabler to that. It would have taken a lot of trial and error work to figure that out, um, you know, without at least a little bit of, you know, insight into, um, you know, kind of the structure you could get from the source code and 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 so forth. And you know, honestly, in the in in my mind, that's where the software industry comes from. You know, before the period of time that I'm talking about, all of the software came with. The, the the computer you bought, you know, so you went to IBM, you bought one of their mainframes, and it came with all the compilers, it came with, you know, pretty much everything you needed to run your environment. Yeah, there were a few small uh, upstart companies after that who had the idea that, well, if I did a better, you know, fill in the blank, cybersecurity product, people would pay me money just for that. And that created the software industry. Uh, you know, this was well before the PC came along, and it um, you know continues today. It's uh, you know it's an important um, you know, development in how kind of the industry thought about you know what's the role of hardware and software, and how does it get packaged together, and you know what vendors can do what, and you know all, all of that stuff. So yeah, yeah, interesting archaeology uh, exercise. <laughs> Yeah. So the the architect architecture of it of the the chips that is one key differentiator between just building it my own yeah. compute and storage and then uh, buying it you know owning an actual quote unquote mainframe uh, capacity you've mentioned a couple times too so that that's one big difference the architecture is a huge difference but you've mentioned capacity is a big difference can you explain to me how the capacity of the mainframes are different than the capacity of, let's say, something I could flip on an AWS. Yeah, I mean, so so mainframes are a little bit different in how they're you know, sized and what their capacity limits are and so forth. One of the really key differences is that, you know, for that architecture we're talking about, you know, I might have you know, one physical cabinet that's got a bunch of processing and memory in, installed into it. Uh, and, you know, unlike most Intel systems, a lot of that is dynamically reconfigurable, you know, sometimes uh, based on a, a, a command that the uh, IT operation folks enter into the system. So, you know, it's it's not a fixed capacity, in other words. It's... Um, 
a, you know, a varying capacity based on you know what your workload re- requires. And you know the big underlying reason for that is all about cost. You know, it's not that there's you know today we look at Intel processors and you know whatever the hot CPU is today, it's got a certain price and a certain set of capabilities and you know we recognize that everybody understands that. Mainframe isn't like that. You know, there might be uh, uh, three or four different models, but within that, there might be a hundred different capacity settings, you know, depending on how big your workload is. So if you're, I don't know, a big retailer, you might spend most of the year with that capacity dialed back, so your costs are pretty low. And then maybe in that period from Thanksgiving to the end of the year, you dial it up and, you know, without any physical change in the box, now you might have double, triple, 10 times more processing capability to handle, you know, the business transactions that you get then. So, you know, and, and, you know, of course, if, if you're, you know, a large company like IBM, you create a whole marketing structure around that. So it's sold that way to the customer. It's, uh, you know, very dynamic to kind of meet his needs and, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's one of the real key differences is that you can very easily size the hardware to the workload that you've got. And even if your workload varies all over the place, you can keep up with that pretty easily without continuously doing hardware upgrades. The other thing, too, is just the, um, the way we think about um, mainframes is, uh, you know, Things like fault tolerance are really important. You know, I want to be able to have, you know, almost, you know, you would think of it as clustering in, uh, you know, in, on other platforms. You know, I want to have multiple mainframes that connect together, work together as though they're one one system. So that's kind of another way I can I can scale these systems. I can have, you know, one standalone mainframe. That's probably fine for a lot of smaller clients. I could have 32 mainframes in a you know single cluster and two you know external users connecting into these systems they see that as one system image you know they see it as you know one cooperative thing that shares resources so yeah you you have that kind of scaling as well uh and then uh yeah of course virtualization you know just like you have in the AWS cloud is possible on the mainframe, so that one uh, uh, one mainframe device, you know, that one system Z server, the physical thing, can be carved up into lots of virtual servers. You know, so you might run, I don't know, a production workload and a test workload and a development workload, and you know, you know whatever your needs are that way, and it all adds up to, um, uh, you know, just a different way to think about uh, the virtualization that way. So there's not, a, there's not a large difference in capacity, how we look at capacity between the two systems. Yeah, I mean... It's mostly architecture. Look, when you're dealing with small levels, small numbers of systems, of course, you have to have massive capacity. So, you know, an example of that is, um, you know, I can have 96... 100 gigabyte network adapters on a single mainframe. Uh, you, know, mm-hmm. you don't see that on you know Intel-based servers. You know, but on the Intel server, you might have I don't know a thousand rack-mount servers, and you know in aggregate, it's uh, you know you can certainly build the, the the capacity that way. Much harder to do off of the mainframe, right? Because you have to design your software to really take advantage of that that type of scale. Mainframe tends to be, you know, way easier to, uh, you know, to, to do that stuff. Yeah, it's just, um, uh, you know, we, and, you know, we, we used to struggle with this uh, quite a bit on the software vendor side. You know, how do you do, you know, even things like pricing that are fair to everybody? You know, some users might scale it down really small, you know, equal to just a couple of servers. Some might scale it up to the equivalent of a million servers. You can't charge the same price for that. So, you know, it, uh, you know, creates complexity. Is it the same in amount the of hardware domain. though? I, I mean, in it, 
no, it would not be the same amount of hardware. Yeah, it would be right. one box or you know, a couple of bo- handful of boxes, physical things, okay. uh, versus racks and racks and racks and racks of uh, Intel servers. But so um, just charging for dynamic usage was what you guys were trying to figure out then. Right? Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot yeah. of software on in the um, you know server world is sold per per device you know so every server i have oh, i charge thousand yeah. dollars when your mainframe yeah. can go from you know 1x to 800x inside the same physical footprint it's hard to do it that way you have to have some other metric uh, uh to you know either not give something away or not have to overcharge so much that the small customers won't won't accept that so yeah, so these, were these small these small customers were connecting into cl- mainframe clusters then, and it was like multi-tenant. Is that what you're describing? I, I mean, it 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 certainly could be that. I mean, there were all sorts of things. I mean, we saw you know on the small side, you would see things like universities or you know smaller companies that had mainframe applications, maybe for you know legacy reasons that they just needed to keep running. You know, they might just need a small amount of mainframe capacity. Uh, you know, that's really different than, I don't know, a city, city group or, you know, someone like that who's doing, you know, millions of transactions a second on their, on, on their mainframes. So, you know, really okay. just depends what your workload is all about. So how you design your strategy for capacity is a key differentiator between mainframe and not mainframe. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, in, okay. in this day and age, a lot of that really just comes down to what's the best way to achieve low cost per transaction. You know, and, and you know, in, in fairness, mainframe is such that if you don't have a big problem to solve, it's probably going to be too expensive for you. You know, if you have you know, a handful of users and a handful of transactions, you know, mainframe is going to be really, really expensive. Uh, On the other hand, if you have massive workloads, you know, maybe you're an airline doing a reservation system or a big banking system or, you know, something like that where you're processing a gazillion transactions, the cost per transaction on the mainframe is going to be much less than most other platforms would be. Because of its efficiencies. I, I mean, that's a core part of it, but it's also things like it's always easier to manage, you know, one big thing than lots and lots of small things. Yeah, the one big thing, you put some policies in place and it kind of takes care of itself. The small, large collection of small things is complicated. You know, you have a lot of interdependencies and connections and network issues and, you know, a hundred things that can go wrong there that just can't go wrong on the mainframe because you only have one of them or, you know, a small number of them. So, you know, that has the effect of driving up like your management costs. And then you think about, well, how am I going to do fault tolerance? How am I going to do, you know, react to spikes in workloads and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, generally those kind of things are just kind of built into the mainframe architecture. There are absolutely ways to do it on other platforms. It just they, they, they tend to work out a little bit more costly on a per transaction basis. Okay, so on the mainframe, if I exceed my, like, let's say I'm an airline and I have to purchase for the greatest capacity I'll ever experience at the highest point in the season, correct? As far as number of mainframes? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, the best practice there would be that, you know, you would sit down and do, I mean, this isn't something you're doing every day. So you want to make sure you're correct and, you know, there are, you know, designated experts in a lot of uh, in a lot of sites that are doing this kind of work, and what they'll do is they'll project out over you know whatever their buying period might be. Often it's uh, you know a three year kind of a time horizon, and they'll say, okay, over that we think here's where our peak workload is going to be, you know, based on you know business conditions and all of that, and then they'll look at what's the cheapest way to do that. Is it, you know, multiple data centers and one big data center? How many mainframes? You know, there'll always be a sweet spot in terms of the 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 costs to, to handling that workload. And that's what they'll put in place. They'll go contract with IBM and all other software vendors and, you know, all of that to put a price in place. And then they kind of just execute against that plan for, 
you know, however however long it's in, in place. Now, certainly surprises happen. You know, if you're, you know, that big airline and there's a sudden spike in travel activity or, you know, whatever it is, regulatory change, whatever it is, and you need, you know, you realize you're going to be 20% short on capacity. Yeah, I mean, you deal with that kind of as you go. But, you know, the important thing is you tend to see that coming. And there are really good tools in this space on the mainframe that help the capacity planner understand uh, you know, what the trends are, you know, and if there is something unexpected, is it just because you implemented some inefficient software that could be done better? Or are you truly handling more transactions than you expected to handle? So, you know, again, it's an iterative thing and you have many options. You, know, you might sit down and say, you know, maybe we shouldn't have rewritten that older COBOL program in Java because now it's taking too much processing power. But, um, yeah, if, if you're, you go through all of those options, the most direct thing to do is add capacity. It's generally um, a matter of, uh, you know, just paying for that and activating it. And again, the mainframes are so dynamic, there's no changes generally for that. You know, you you have the, uh, you know, good folks at uh, IBM activate that extra capacity inside your box. You kind of wander over to the machine, push a few keystrokes, and now your your system got bigger. So, uh, yeah, yeah, totally non-disruptive. It's not like you even have to, you know reboot the systems and in any way in a lot of cases like that it's very cloud-like then so yes so then me me being on the outside of this and only i've written business logic ruby on rails php type code Mm -hmm. for the majority of my software career it and so that that's you know my my experience so when i'm looking at it having a conversation with you as an expert has been eating sleeping and breathing this stuff for 30 years right and i'm trying to understand the differences between the environment i grew up in and what people are calling this mainframe, uh, the 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 key difference that I'm going to walk away with, and so you're going to have to correct me before I do walk away. <laughs> but the key difference I'm going to walk away with is that the because of the architecture that is implemented on mainframes, people write applications that are more efficient, which at scale will create a better cost per transaction. So these large companies use these mainframes because of the, it's just the most cost efficient way to do things. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's largely true. I mean, I would not discount the fact that a lot of it is just facts on the ground. You know, if you're a big insurance company, you have a portfolio of thousands of mainframe applications and the costs of redoing them to run that workload somewhere else there's, you know, there's just no business value in that. So you just kind of keep going with what you have that way. Oh. So, okay. um, I, I mean, if you know, put yourself in the shoes of the CIO at a lot of these sites, last he, he's got something that, you know, it's running, it's been in place forever, it's, you know, meeting their business needs. I mean, he's, he's not going to dismantle that just to say, you know, yeah, it's in stupid, the yeah. AWS cloud or something. He needs a... a you know, important reason for that. And, you know, and I'm not saying that doesn't exist. He might have a good reason for doing that. He might, you mm-hmm. know, he might look out over his mainframe staff and they're all kind of my age, you know, early 60s. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he might look at that and say, you know, in five years, who's going to do this work? And, you know, that might be the motivation to take him to the, you know, some other platform. But, you know, just for do- doing it oh, for the yeah, sake the of cost. doing it. Yeah. And as the people retire, the there will be a smaller number of people that know this technology, and then they'll become higher in demand, and that cost will raise to a point where it might make sense, just out of bandwidth of being able to make changes to your system to to move the systems. Yeah, I mean, you would think that, and you know, and it's funny you you make that observation. I um, I actually wrote a big research paper on this many years ago because it was one of the things we were very concerned about, you know, where where the skills going to come from in the future. Uh, you know, it's not like most American universities have programs in mainframe computing anymore. And in fact, even the professors, if they wanted that, they couldn't teach it today. You know, there there just aren't folks who, uh, who know this space in that, uh, you know, academic world anymore. 
So, um, and, you know, I don't mean that as a wholesale statement. I mean, I don't, I don't want to get comments from we're gonna, some We're going to bill it as a wholesale statement. That is the official <laughs> view. <laughs> yeah, but, no, but you know, cool. the, the, the point is it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely uncommon. a source of concern. But yeah. on the other hand, if you look at it, what you said is very, um, uh, is, is a very good observation. You know, you would expect that the laws of supply and demand would step in in that case. And as folks kind of hit that retirement age and the pool of folks with mainframe talent shrinks, uh, you would expect wages to be going through the roof. You would expect, you know, all sorts of things to happen. And, you know, just to go past that, it would eventually be self-correcting. You know, people would look at it as, you know, I've got my computer science degree. I can earn X as a you know, web developer somewhere, or I can earn 2x by going and doing mainframe things. And so eventually that would tend to balance out. I can tell you that's not, that's not happening. You know, if I go it's back not. and I yeah. track inflation-adjusted wages for mainframe developers from the year 2000 to now, it's less growth than you see in most other areas. A PHP developer, for instance, uh, you know, their wages have inflated more in the last 20 years than a mainframe developer has. Yeah, So you know, I think what that really comes down to is if this is a trend, it's a trend everywhere. And there actually is more demand for you know, all of the other skills we're talking about versus mainframe skills. You know, another thing um, that you see in the mainframe community is... You know, for all the reasons we were talking about, you tend to be able to run a large mainframe site with less staff than an equivalent amount of capacity in a you know non-mainframe site. So, you know, there there are you know an example a customer that I used to you know be pretty actively engaged with. You when I looked at his mainframe team, the whole thing, top to bottom, you know, twenty twenty five people. The non-mainframe side of his business was closer to 500 people. So the, the truth seems to be it's just, you know, people are finding ways to bring new skills in because it's not like you need hundreds of them. You only need, you know, a relative handful of them by comparison. And I think that's what's helping keep the kind of skill balance uh, alive and in, in, in really across the industry. Uh, you know, we, we saw it, um, you know, I, I, I spent many years at CA and we had this fear, um, you know, quite a bit, you know, where would our future stars come from? You know, the, the folks with really deep mainframe technical skills. And, uh, you know, we did what any business would do. You know, we invested, we created um, a couple of new programs, new development centers. We staffed them with, you know, younger, younger folks. And we made the conscious business decision that we were going to spend maybe three to five years training them and grow the skill that we needed organically. And, you know, that would serve our needs for, you know, the foreseeable future. I think a lot of the larger mainframe sites are uh, kind of going that way. Now, if you're a medium size or small site, you know, maybe you don't have the option to do that. And maybe you are really concerned about the skill issues here. So, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's not really a one-size-fits-all answer, but it does seem that uh, what you would expect as kind of the economics of supply and demand for mainframe developers isn't really behaving the way you would think it does, in the, in, in the, you know, at least in the first cut. Yeah, I'd say, I, I, look, I don't have a dog in this race, but I would think that th- there... I agree with all the points you made. I don't think any of them are wrong. I'm interested. Here's how I can say this. I'm interested to see what happens in the next 20 years with that wage growth, largely because there is a component to a lot of these people starting their career and then living their career out for 30 years. And the dynamics of just what's happened in our country with the finances, uh, as far as, you know, buying homes at a lower cost per total salary, living in those homes, a lot of, there's just a different mindset of people in their fifties and sixties than there are today of the, this generation. And so I think that 
if we haven't, from your research, if we haven't seen a large growth change that we're maybe a decade or two away from seeing it because then you get more people retiring and then you're going to, you're just going to have that, that need. Uh, I, I think, you know, I've had one conversation with, uh, uh, a while back ago, I'm pretty sure it, we didn't air it because of some reason or another, but it was a major public utility company in a state, which will go unnamed. And they had a problem with their systems and they looked around and they realized that they knew nobody in the industry that understood how these programs were written and the, they were down and they just had this huge, huge issue. So they started calling all these retired guys <laughs> and pulling them in as consultants, trying to get them to help. And, uh, and so I thought that that was fascinating that that can actually, that, that can actually happen, but um, yeah, the worst case we can do is, you know, you can, as CA did, they can hire a bunch of people. We could also go to the retirement homes. You, we can start a little business together, my friend, Vince. There we, we can go. Go to the retirement homes and we can train chat GPT. We can neuro link up the, the older people, have it train chat GPT. And then now we can have one person Damn. run the entire mainframe. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, the other thing that's um, important here is the, skill level is different today than 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 in the past. Uh, you know, when I was kind of coming up in this space, yeah, you, no matter what your role was, you generally had kind of, you know, today we would think of them as very deep skills. You know, you knew how to write, uh, you know, assembler language, you know, in the language of the machine. You knew, you know, not just how to administer things, but how things actually worked underneath and how to take advantage of that, you know, over the years, uh, and it, you know, it's not really just IBM, I'll give them a lot of the credit, but a lot of the software vendors too, have just automated so much of that out of these systems that the need is different today. You know, today it's more about how do I administer it rather than how does it work? And, um, mm. you know, because of that, yeah, I think that also has been a big help in the in the skill issue that we're talking about. You know, plus the other okay. thing too is that you know one of the things that helps on other platforms is you know the whole offshoring idea. You know, the fact that I could have you know two hundred developers tomorrow sitting in you know some country like India, uh, all I have to do is pay for it. Uh, I can do that very easily with mainframe developers. You know, I, I you know, for whatever reason, those skills just never, you know, blossomed in a lot of the places where you find low-cost offshore talent. So, you know, that, that you know, just creates a different dynamic than what we've seen in uh, other places. You know, I want a website build, you know, what the technologies you mentioned, PHP and you know, MySQL and, you know, all of that. I mean, that, I, you know, I can do that anywhere. I can, I can even crowdsource that. I don't have to do it, uh -huh. uh, uh, you know, in a formal kind of a way and have employees for that. Can't really have most of those options with uh, mainframe applications, even though a lot of those same technologies exist in the ZOS operating system and they sort of work the same way. It's just not, uh, you know, a common environment that, you know, people have access to or would feel feel comfortable that way. Um, you know, funny, funny uh, example of that. One of the projects we worked on involved a little bit of open source. And, you know, we looked at the open source and it didn't support the you know, mainframe operating systems. So we decided we would do that. You know, we took a, a snapshot of the source code. We enhanced it so it would run fine on ZOS. And, you know, we were pretty happy with it. And, you know, at the end of the project, we figured we would just turn what we had done back over to the uh, original developer and he could, you know, carry it forward as new releases came along and so forth. He refused to take it from us. And his rationale was, I don't have a mainframe. I don't have any way to test that in the future. I don't have any way to know what works and what doesn't work. So... Yeah, that 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 kind of work sometimes gets orphaned that way because you just don't find, you know, a broad skill base there the way you do on uh, yeah, some other platforms. Well, I'm watching time. I want to make sure that we get a little call to action in for what you guys are doing over at your company, Virtual Z. Can you just give me the 30 second 
why virtual Z exists, what problem you solve for the mainframe? Yeah, I mean, uh, virtual Z um, is all about making it easy to you know share that data that's on your mainframe with other platforms. Uh, you know, no matter what you're doing with the mainframe, the reality is, you know, today every business has mainframe and other things. And, you know, one of the critical needs there is how do I get data out of my mainframe and into, you know, wherever I need it? You know, it could be an AI tool. It could be, you know, God knows what. And historically, that's been a hard thing to do. You know, it's been, you know, file transfers and... FTP and all of that kind of stuff. Well, what we do in our products is, uh, and really there are two key products here. The first product is about leave the data on the mainframe, but make it easy to ex make it accessible from anywhere you want. So, you know, we make all of that mainframe data look like a big network drive in the sky and you can consume it from just about any application. Number two is kind of the opposite of that. It's, you know, I got the application on the mainframe and it needs some data that I'm producing in a cloud application or in, you know, whatever it is, it's not on my mainframe. So, yeah, I want my existing mainframe application that was maybe written 30 years ago to be able to read and write data in, you know, let's say the Amazon cloud or Azure or Google or, mm -hmm. you know, wherever it happens to be. So that's kind of the problem that we solve for customers. And, you know, and it's a funny thing. We know how to do this for you know, a decade now on other platforms. You know, if I'm running a Windows server and I need a couple of terabytes of storage, yeah, I don't even think twice about that. I go to Amazon, I go to Dropbox, I go, you know, wherever I wherever I want to get that storage and I use it. You know, and I don't, you know, that's not a particularly novel thing to do anymore. Mainframes have never really participated in that and that's what we enable today. You know, we enable um, any mainframe customer to leverage low-cost cloud storage, um, you know, share information across, you know, whether the application is a mainframe application using cloud data or a cloud application that needs mainframe data. You know, we, we make it just drop-dead simple to do all of that. Saves the customer a huge amount of time and money having to figure out how to get data from A to B. Uh, you know, we guarantee that it's all done in a secure way and with a lot of integrity so that, you, know, you don't break other applications that might be referencing that same data, and um, yeah, and it and it feels like uh, it feels like an important requirement that mainframe customers really struggle with today. Nice, and that's Virtual Z. We can put a link in the show notes, and uh, man, that's that's it. We did it. Well, thanks, guys. It's been uh, been a pleasure. Yeah. Not nearly as painful as it could have been, despite the <laughs> AV issues. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.